Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. I'm Vass Bednar, and I'm taking over from Ed Greenspond for the next three weeks. As part of the Public Policy Forum's Brave New Work Project, we'll be exploring the trends and features shaping the future of work, and think about what policymakers, business leaders, academics, and others can do about it to ensure that no one's left behind. Today, we're talking about decent work and what it means to have a good job. You can subscribe to Policy Speaking wherever you get your podcasts or head on over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writing, including all of the latest Brave New Work content. Enjoy the show. In this episode of Brave New Work, we're exploring the many ways in which technology is changing work. In so doing, we'll also be considering whether worker rights may be poorly understood and articulated. Now, I don't mean to suggest that all change is bad or hurtful, but the pandemic has accelerated all sorts of shifts in the workplace that are worth exploring and contextualizing. In this episode, after discussing a framework to assess how technological change affects work, we'll consider how trucking is changing, not just in terms of automated driving on the horizon, right? Many are anticipating the displacement of drivers by technology, but in terms of increasing and normalized surveillance. We'll connect this to the addition of multiple cameras all over Amazon trucks and ask what the boundaries regarding cameras at work are and why they seem so blurry. In doing so, I wanna consider how surveillance technology can or does infringe on worker rights, as well as what makes a good job and how technology factors into that. We're gonna speak with three guests in order to do that. We're gonna kick off with Unifor economist, Kaylee Thiessen to discuss that framework for assessing how technological change affects work so that we can break beyond that binary of substitution or complementarity. After that, we'll speak to Brenda McPhail. She's the director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association's Privacy, Surveillance and Technology Project. Brenda's gonna help me make sense of where the boundaries are or should be when it comes to surveilling workers of all kinds. We'll close out with Benjamin Lohr. He's the author of The Secret Life of Groceries. Ben's gonna share what he learned about how grocery work and trucking has eroded over time and what policymakers can do about it. With these insights, we'll point to urgent and underappreciated opportunities for the policy community. I'm speaking to Unifor economist and researcher Kaylee Thiessen about a framework for assessing how technological change affects work so that together we can break beyond the binary of substitution or complementarity when it comes to how technology is changing work, changing everyone's work. Welcome, Kaylee. Hi, Bess. Thanks for having me. Hey, our pleasure. So how should we think about technological change? Oh, man, it's... I know. The, the main thing to, to think about in this way is that it's far more nuanced than kind of what the general discourse in the headlines suggests in, in what we read every day. Um, back in 2018, the research department at Unifor was getting a ton of requests to either help a bargaining unit like prepare for coming technological change 
or respond to technological change. And we realized the conversations that folks were having around the bargaining table weren't very nuanced. And so we weren't necessarily responding to the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we developed this framework. It's six ways uh, that a worker can be affected by technological change at work. And it includes a bunch of different things. It could be that you lose your job. It could be that you're doing your same job for a different company for less pay. Or you might be estranged from your job um, just by the fact that you used to work in customer service and, and interact with people and now you're doing something different. So that's one way. Another way is that you might have a different skill set that's required. So you'll need some new training. There might be productivity enhance- enhancement or workload <laughs> increases that are disguised as productivity enhancement, like when you have to take your cell phone home and do extra work after hours, uh, but your employer appears to be more productive. Another really important one that we talked about a lot is increased surveillance. And this happens in so many different ways in so many different places. Like I think about people who clean um, hotel rooms at hotels and the fact that their work is tracked and they have to sign in every time they get to a new hotel and they're micromanaged from afar by by their manager. Another one is health and safety and ergonomics. Mm. And here we think about new technology. I think a lot about sitting at your desk all day and what it means for um, the health of your body to be constantly curled over (laughs) the desk like me. Or it could be that you need some new equipment in order to be able to work in an ergonomically correct way while you're installing pieces of a car in an auto plant as another example. And then the final one, is employment security and you could have um, just less security in your job on a daily basis or changes in your pay. So all of those things together are different ways that um, you could be affected by technological change, but they all also each require a different response, either policy or bargaining or on an individual level, but they all require a different response. So the conversation when it's just am I going to lose my job to a robot or not, isn't nuanced enough to respond to the problem. Yeah, I kind of hate that sometimes we're still having that conversation or that's the thrill. And there are definitely parts of my work that I wouldn't mind if they were automated because it would increase my productivity in other ways. But this podcast is not about me and my work. So (laughs) two aspects in particular from the framework that I'd love to pick up on are skills and surveillance. So, you know, in Canada... Again, this is just my observation, but it seems like we are, you know, making making a bet or, you know, significant investments in retraining or re or upskilling programs as a way to insulate people for the future of work or just a, a way to help people respond to an evolving labor market. But the uncertainty there, to my mind, is whose responsibility it is to develop and offer these programs. Right now, it seems to be shared fairly, mm, not necessarily equitably, but it's definitely blurry between the government and employers, and probably a fair amount of these programs will be paid for out of pocket by workers. So there's a new, newish federal benefit. But is there a particular way that you think about responsibility or or see, you know, either employer interest or capacity to invest in such programs versus the appetite from workers, from people? 
again, it's so it's so nuanced and there's so many different ways to be looking at this. I mean, it depends what kind of skills someone is trying to acquire and, and then right. what type of training they would go for. Is that a four-year degree or a two-month training program? But in general, what, what we're seeing is that there's been a slow decline in the share of uh, the expense of retraining that is paid for by employers. There's okay. also been a slow decline in the share of training, and this is at the um, university level, in the share of, of that sort of training that's paid for by the government. And that means that individuals are paying for a lot more than they used to. And at the same time, we're seeing this conversation where everyone's expected to be constantly learning new skills mm-hmm. in order to keep up. So it's an individual who's already probably facing depressed um, wages and working conditions who then also has to be struggling to try and figure out what they should be training for and how they're going to pay for it and whether or not they're going to take time off to do it. So we have a ton of recommendations for, for uh, improvements to the system. And I can go through a couple of them just really quickly. Yeah, I'd love to hear them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So one of them is we need a mechanism to recognize the essential and transferable skills that people have already acquired through experience on the job and in life. So like if you think of a parent who's taken some time off work to run a household, there's an immense amount of transferable and essential skills in there that could be used, but you don't have a degree or a diploma that says you have them. Same thing if you're transferring from um, working in a call center to work to working somewhere else, you will have inherently developed a set of essential skills. But how do you prove to an employer that you have them? So that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Another is like universal access to employment services. Doesn't matter if you qualify for EI or not. If you're unemployed, you should have access to employment services. Improving the Canada training benefit is essential. We have this Canada training benefit it's not now. Enough. It's yeah. not enough. It's definitely not enough. We we need it to be a lot stronger. Um, one piece would be to extend the benefit from four weeks to like 16 weeks. So at least that covers one semester of, of training at a time. Okay. Increase the income replacement rate to 85% so that people have income support while they're going through mm-hmm. training. Make sure that if a worker is getting the training and accessing the benefit because an employer wants them to, that then their entire income is is covered and the employer is paying for part of that as well these are these are just a few examples of uh of things that we need to make sure are improved so that people have access and then we need to create this like culture of lifelong learning something i hear hear others say a lot and we need to recognize people actually have the skill to or the ability to learn all throughout life often an older worker might be looked at as like, oh, well, we can't retrain them. They're too old. Totally not true. We just yeah. have to actually engage in the conversation and then go for it. Um, and that way people are experiencing a just transition through this process instead of just losing their livelihood and being left as waste. It's not okay. Mm-hmm. So recognizing and honoring the skills that people are developing naturally by virtue of continuing their careers and then providing much better support when people are making the time investments and financial investments to earn those credentials that hopefully are properly recognized by those very same employers that claim claim to be wanting them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's touch a little bit more on surveillance. So later, later in this episode, we're going to touch on 
how trucking is changing. So there was that excellent Planet Money, Big Rigged, that covered a trucking company uh, in the U.S. It's called Prime. Um, and they present two ways to drive for the company. You can be a company driver or a lease operator. And the reality with trucking is that the dominant business model right now is a lease operator, where workers are asked to essentially work to purchase their own truck, to take a loan to access that truck. They basically receive more in terms of bills than paychecks. And for some period of time, you know, realize they're working without getting paid. Now that contributes to very high turnover in trucking. But I think something that's less well established or at least described for people and for policymakers is the surveillance aspect. So again, with trucking, there's that erosion in terms of contracting and kind of how it works. There's these projections around how trucking will be disrupted by autonomous vehicles at some point, likely, and that's for another conversation. But there's this future of work aspect that's happening right now with cameras and these same issues around consent to more surveillance at work, to more data collection, to, you know, as you said, the cleaners, you know, clocking in, clocking out, you know, only being paid for any minute that you're working. But if you're traveling between floors of a hotel, are you really working? And that's not cleaning. So you're not going to be compensated. These same issues around consent and, and proportionality that we're going to speak about with Brenda McPhail persist. Um, and they're not just being faced by people in the trucking industry. My understanding is that bus drivers, heavy equipment operators in the oil sands, sailors, fishermen, train engineers, their future of work is here and it it's cameras and, and data collection. Now, is that improving their work? And I mean, again, it's, more, it's a much more nuanced conversation than that. And I get excited about more data and big data as well and like learning about your business. But how can we make sure, again, if this is a clue about the future of work is here and it's happening and it might not always be so great, I want to pull out some lessons for us as thinkers and then for the, for the policy community as well. Yeah, I, I wish you could have seen my face <laughs> when when you said, does this improve their work? Or I was like, <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the, the experience of surveillance is, um, I think, incredibly uh, distracting and mm. uh, can have a negative uh, influence on your mental health and increases your stress level. Uh, we have members in so many different sectors, uh, particularly those that drive uh, in, in different areas that are experiencing this kind of surveillance every day. And something like a camera on a bus or in a truck is put in place at, in order to like protect a bus driver's safety. But we do know that bus drivers experience a lot of uh, harassment. Uh, yes. And so something like, like that can, can be um, a way to prove later that harassment occurred. Mm -hmm. But if the data is collected in a way that can be used against a worker as well, then you're constantly under surveillance. So something that we've talked about is like the need to make sure we're avoiding sort of hyper performance management. Uh, and we can do that through bargaining and collective agreements or like just micromanaging worker behavior. Um, there are There is technology out there can, that can actually monitor how hard you press a gas pedal 
or press a break. And then that data potentially could be used against a worker. Um, so how do we make sure that it's used appropriately? It's a very, very important piece of the puzzle. Also knowing who owns it and how else it might be used. Like that data can never yeah. be sold and used by another company to sell you something. Police cannot access that data. Some of our folks uh, have to use their fingerprints in order to access their uh, employment. Really? Biometric? Yeah, yeah, police can never access your fingerprint. At least they shouldn't be able to in the event that they're investigating a crime in your workplace, those sorts of things. And we need to make sure we're dealing with that in advance in order to uh, not be having a fight after the fact. And that's actually a really important point <laughs> when we're talking about this framework in general is one of the things we found as people were feeling like they had no control. There's, we have right. no control over this process. It's like, okay, well, let's make sure we can put the framework in place that can guide us through this process so that we do have control or as much as possible. And it doesn't mean rejecting new technology. It means rejecting bad new technology. And it does mean making sure that we have the right rules in place so that people um, are, the technology isn't being used against us. Totally. I'll close with a little bit more of a wildcard question. Which is, you know, we were talking about lifelong learning and credentialing that and absolutely, you know, I'd love to be a lifelong learner. I hope I'm still learning things, but I also don't feel the comparative pressure to, you know, get badges or, or pay to prove that I'm a lifelong learner. So I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. Coding is often pointed to as one of the many skills of the future, one of, you know, the skill sets that's in very high demand right now as well. So back to that, you know, looking at Looking forward by looking at the now, we've also seen, policymakers have seen, and this is more US-based, but attempts to retrain minors, you know, as coders. And I know that skills is part of the framework that you're thinking about, but I wonder if you have broad thoughts in terms of how do we decide what the skills of the future really are and who needs to be involved in those conversations so that we're not off the mark because the accountability aspect, I think, is quite fascinating. Again, if we're projecting that coding is this big skill and I go pay a ton of money out of pocket, partially subsidized by this great new federal benefit, and then either the skill is not, the credentials not recognized or, you know, this the skill that you're receiving is too basic to actually monetize on the labor market, I guess I get stressed about this and I don't quite know how to think about it. And I'm hoping you can help me approach it more thoughtfully? Yeah, I mean, I have so many thoughts. Um, okay. One that comes to mind immediately is that there are many lessons we can learn from the past. There's this mm -hmm. sort of folk tale that, that goes around <laughs> in Ontario where there's a number of people who lost their jobs. They were all paid to retrain as forklift drivers. Then we had so many right. forklift drivers that the price of uh, labor for forklift driving went down dramatically. Uh, most, not most, but a, a large portion of those folks did not get a job in forklift driving. Um, and in the process, the quality of work was depressed. That's a folk tale, as far as I know. It's not something that I've like read a paper on. Um, but we need to make sure that if we are training people for the future, it's not like everyone's training in, into one thing, but we have lots going on. I looked at a paper just this morning. It's called Preparing for the Future of Work in Canada. And the top yeah. digital skills in demand in Ontario right now are 
you wait for it, okay? Microsoft Excel, Microsoft Office, Microsoft PowerPoint, and Microsoft Word. That is like a far cry from coding. You know, those are, it's so different. And, and so there's, there's one thing to say 50 years from now, we're going to need everybody to be coders. And it's another to say that we should all know a little bit about what coding is so that um, right. we can use different programs at different times, but it's something far different to say someone who's transitioning from one job to another tomorrow needs to know Microsoft Excel and PowerPoint and Word as basic digital skills that are lacking and not um, coding. Another point, <laughs> I have so many, is <laughs> <laughs> another point is, is just that there should be some level of choice in this as well. So we need as much information as is possible, but also useful. Not having too much data just, um, you know, paralyzes decision making. So having the right data so that workers can make these decisions for themselves say like, oh, I think I'd be really interested and enjoy coding. It's a very mm -hmm. introverted thing. I do it by myself in a cubicle and I will have sense of satisfaction with, with uh, accomplishing a difficult task. Great. Someone who's say a um, customer service representative, that's a really uh, extroverted job. And so yeah. might not enjoy coding so much. So how do you make sure that people have the right information about the jobs and that there's enough we know enough about all the different jobs that are going to be necessary so people can make decisions for themselves to build their highest quality of life, which includes stability and decent pay and good work, and also includes making sure that like you enjoy the job that you're doing, if at all possible, um, which is one piece of the larger puzzle. Well, enjoyment and pleasure is not one of the, the six ways that your job can be affected by new technology in the workplace. Perhaps it's the seventh. I'll just run through the six again for the benefit <laughs> of our listeners. Uh, job loss, displacement, and estrangement. Change in work organization and required skills. Productivity enhancement versus workload increases. Increased surveillance, health and safety. And how do you say ergonomics like that? Ergonomics, just like that. I, you've made me stressed about how much I'm the hunchback of Notre Dame at work. That's a separate <laughs> issue. And changes, changes in pay and employment security. It was so fun to talk to you. I'm looking forward to learning more from uh, and with you. And we'll definitely link to that paper that you mentioned, Preparing for the okay. Future of Work in Canada. Kaylee, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. I'm joined by Brenda McPhail. She's the director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association's Privacy Surveillance and Technology Project. That means that she guides the CCLA's interventions in key court cases that raise privacy issues. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you. It's great to be here. My pleasure. So something I'm really excited to dig into with you, and I get excited right out the gate, is that concept of proportionality as it pertains to surveillance at work. Like I read these news stories about Amazon adding cameras to delivery trucks, and I can't help but wonder, how is this allowed? Maybe you could take us through some of the, the legal concepts that make adding cameras to people's workplaces permissible in the first place. And then we can start to talk about where we're seeing this and, and more and more and more. But why, like, why is this allowed? So the question of proportionality as it pertains to workplaces and privacy is a really interesting one um, because the reality is 
workers don't have a lot of privacy rights. It's a long-standing problem, and it stems from the idea that workers enter voluntarily into an employment contract, and if they don't like the conditions of the job, they don't need to accept the contract, or if the conditions of the job change during the time that they're there, they can vote with their feet. They can leave the organization. Mm. So when you think about a conventional proportionality, necessity and proportionality analysis that we would do in a situation where we're trying to balance privacy rights with benefits, those kind of analyses are much harder to conduct off the bat in a workplace Mm -hmm. because the rights that employees have are relatively minimal. That said, they're not absent. Um, They do have rights, but often... It's not that the employee and the owner negotiate that proportionality analysis. The owner does it. And of course they do it in their own interest. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some, you know, there are well-established precedents that say that owners have a right to make sure that their employees are productive because they're paying them for their time. This is not, it's not a new kind of analysis. No. This is something that's been, you know, goes right back to the industrial revolution uh, that employees, employers have the right to control um, the behavior of their employees while they're in their employ in order to assure that they earn their wage. And so the traditional kinds of analyses we do are are really skewed and -hmm. the way that employers do them tend to be how much can we require of our workers while maintaining technically within the law. Mm-hmm. Well, when we when we chat with our next guest, Benjamin Moore, we're going to touch on trucking a little bit. And we touched on trucking just a moment ago with Kaylee Thiessen. Um, but it's not just truckers that are subject to this surveillance creep. As we think through the renegotiation of that broader, you know, contract or bargain employment contract, are you noticing that it is profession? specific or, or sector specific in any way. I mean, I'll just share my observation is that this, because of the pandemic, this creep has sort of been accelerated and shown up in, in new and maybe more surprising ways. Of course, we've talked about it with students and examination software, and there is a bargain around trust and kind of what's been trying to protect there for sure. But also, you know, I think workers that previously enjoyed the kind of flexibility that we're both enjoying now, just working from home and from a, from a laptop. I don't know if you have a desktop, I have a laptop, but I can work freely without my employer randomly screenshotting my screen or turning on my webcam or counting my keystrokes. And not everyone can lay claim to that. And it, it, it freaks me out in the pandemic context where, you know, given the economy, people might feel that they have less ability to even voice opposition but I just asked 10 questions and started answering them. So let's start with <laughs> who else, what other workers are seeing this, seeing the surveillance trend, which will help, I think helps us understand with the future of work, where it could be going. So that's a really hard question to answer. Okay. Uh, because it's so broad, because I think in truth, mm. the answer is almost every kind of work across every sector, ranging from blue collar to white collar and everything in between are increasingly starting to experience this sort of surveillance gaze. 
I was actually trying to think of one category of worker who maybe hasn't started to experience this. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of coming up blank. I mean, I know you mentioned in your initial string of questions, the fact yeah. that you and I are pretty privileged in terms of the positions we sit in, mm-hmm. even at CCLA, because we are running Outlook software. Yeah, same. We now get, you know, a little update on Microsoft 365 that tracks tracks our activity and tells yeah. us who we've been collaborating with and how much time we've had for focus time and how much. I know. And Devastating. How many meetings I joined late. If I'm typing during the meeting, it tells me that too. No, you're absolutely right. I'm so glad you raised that. You know, right now, my boss is not reviewing those for me to the best of my knowledge, but he could. Absolutely. (laughs) So, and I think that also perfectly captures the tension where, you know, in a, in a data hungry and data rich environment, you know, on the one hand, there is this fascination and of course for us, fascination with the self, right? I mean, wow. How many meetings did I join in time? Who do I read all my emails? Oops, I had zero quiet days last month because it's a pandemic and I'm at my computer every day. So let's try to get two quiet days. But perhaps some of that ends up being normalizing. I love that question. It's better to ask where, you know, who isn't subject to surveillance at work? I don't know, dentists? Like, I don't know. That's a place. I mean, we also have to distinguish between digital surveillance. Yes. Garden variety surveillance. Let's do that. Let's do that. Because there, there is a difference. So, I mean, surveillance has been a, a feature of a lot of different kinds of work for a long time, but it wasn't, you know, technologically mediated. It was a supervisor who was watching. In the case right. of the test, it was, you know, the patient in the chair who was watching what they were doing and ready to, you know, call them on any mistakes or errors. It was, there was sort of external pressure from the waiting room full of people who would all know if that particular uh, dentist, you know, was off schedule, if they were keeping them wait- waiting a long time. That, that is a form of surveillance. It's diffuse mm-hmm. and pervasive and distributed, um, but it's still, I mean, surveillance at its core is, is about watching, paying consistent attention, you know, for the purposes of managing or controlling or influencing um, or monitoring behavior. So that would be a form of of behavioral monitoring that would happen sort of diffusely all the time. Where we get the the issue with digital surveillance is of course it puts all of the capacity, all of that on steroids. Mm -hmm. It provides the ability for something, for watching that is ubiquitous and covert and granular and never ending. So mm. you've got both sort of a, a quantitative difference in, in what can be watched when and how, and a qualitative difference in the individual's experience of that watching. And mm-hmm. both of those things, you know, create profound issues when it comes yeah. to, you know, simply the humanity and dignity that we have uh, when we're at work. So in that way, I suppose it's fair to say that it weighs big and small surveillance has always been a core part of work for most people in terms of the supervision aspect, you know, other, let's say, eyeballs. I like that phrase you had, I think the surveillance gaze. Um, But now that it's on steroids, how do you see us negotiating this more effectively when it comes to, I won't say the future of work, I'll just say the future, you know, assuming that there's more 
tools, tactics, software, probably marketed to emphasize the benefit to us, to our employers. Going forward, given that more more and more of us are subject to this in ways that we probably don't appreciate or didn't anticipate, what is maybe your vision or a CCLA vision for more effectively negotiated employment, I suppose employment rights to balance the benefits that we can legitimately gain from more data on where our workers are and kind of what they're doing as a business insight, but also protecting people's privacy. I think that, you know, what gets measured and how it gets measured Mm -hmm. has a huge impact on the way that we do our jobs. Back before I was at CCLA, I, you know, long ago, I wrote a PhD thesis. My thesis was actually um, about call center workers who were working in a ubiquitously surveilled environment. And I was very interested, among, among other things, at looking at how the way that they were measured affected uh, what they felt accountable for in their workplace. Mm. And, and of course, in a call center, that was very granular. They have systems that can collect up to you know, 200 plus real-time metrics about a worker's behavior online at any time, including their keystrokes, their voice, their words, everything that they're, everything that they're involved in, essentially. Wow. So they had this very granular behavioral interactive data. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they had an organizational message that said, your job is to provide awesome customer service. There was a clear gap between uh, what they were being measured on and what they were told that their accountabilities were. And of course, many of them really felt the, the tension between those two things because everybody wants to do a good job, right? Every, in general, workers want to perform well because a lot of our, our identity, who we are, is tied yeah. up in the work that we do. So these, these people thought about themselves as professionals. They wanted to fulfill the, the lofty goal of providing awesome service, supporting, supporting the business. Um, and it was very hobbling to them to be mm-hmm. catched on, not by whether or not that customer ended the call happy, mm. but whether or not they got that customer off the phone within a predetermined interval that was allowed for that category of call. Wow. So, and you know, some of them pushed back and just ignored the metrics. There was actually a bit of a, you know, sometimes when the metrics came out, if they were really bad, the person who had the worst report was congratulated by their peers, you know, because, hey, well, you must have done a good job because your numbers are really bad. So this is a long-winded way of saying people perform um, either to what matters to them in their job or to the accountabilities that are presented. And if a measurement system makes those two things, puts those two things Mm -hmm. in conflict, it creates a really nasty work environment, a really difficult work environment, one where there's likely to be a lot of turnover um, and one where neither business goals nor personal workplace satisfaction is likely to likely to happen. So I think when we talk about, you know, how these things get measured, first of all, it's important to recognize that, that what you're measuring needs to align with business goals. And if it doesn't, you're creating a mess off the bat. This is exactly in a call center, you know, that's actually a fairly, that's an industry where this kind of monitoring is very mature. Yeah. They've been doing it for a long time, decades. Oh in yeah. Fact. Oh yeah. Um, 
And yet, you know, in the places that I went to in my ethnographic qualitative research, they still didn't quite have it pinned down. Yeah. Well, I suppose based on what you've outlined, that's what helps me understand where maybe some of this, at least small p policy opportunities are, because it strikes me that these situations end up, you know, it's a person by person, workplace by workplace, profession by profession trend in receiving more surveillance. And then we, the, just that the burden is more on individuals to, to negotiate that contract, you know, even against purpose, justification and practice seems a little bit absurd to me. So in, in that sense, I see so many, so many opportunities as we look ahead to policymakers supporting people to thrive in a future of work that is no doubt going to be characterized by continued and probably even more sophisticated and pervasive surveillance, frankly, unless we are able to standardize and yeah, improve, improve what that bargain is. And in the meantime, you and I got to turn off these Microsoft Outlook updates. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, let's be clear. The fact that, you know, that we can identify a systemic problem in the way that yeah. surveillance is operationalized um, in a wide range of workplaces sort of begs the question of, of whether is it appropriate, whether it is right, whether it is, yeah. whether it is rights respecting. I think when you identify the fact that a lot of surveillance just isn't fit for purpose, you do isolate a policy solution or a policy response, which is let's fix it. There is a big gap there, but the policy mm -hmm. solution is not just to look at how do we tighten it up and make right. it effective. The other question that goes into the other question you're asking, I think, which is how do we more effectively think about employment rights or how do, yes. we, how do we frame a workplace of the future that would allow for reasonable surveillance methods or monitoring uh, without it being excessive, without it being harmful for people. And that's an extremely hard question, uh, but I think in some ways it comes down to, as a society, we need to put some regulation in place. We yeah. have done a, an appallingly bad job generally of regulating technology. Yeah. Uh, we're in the process of updating our privacy laws right now in Canada, you know, that were created at a time when, when you talked about filing, you meant putting a piece of paper in a folder and opening a drawer of a cabinet. Mm -hmm. And those are the, those are the laws that we're using to try and, and govern privacy in the age of big data um, and ubiquitous, potential, you know, technologically mediated surveillance. Uh, so we have to, we do have to start thinking socially about not just how do we regulate it, but going back even further to first principles. Yeah. What kind of surveillance, what kind of monitoring is necessary? What are the risks and harms? Who gets harmed? Does the harm fall disproportionately on any particular you know, subset of employees, mm -hmm. different groups? Is, is it uniformly distributed? Does it particularly impact other, some over others? And then is the, is the benefit to the employer genuinely proportionate to the yeah. risks of harm. Well, Brenda, all the more reason to raise and have persistence with the questions that you're raising, no matter the kind of 
policy area that our listeners might be interested in or the sector or industry that they're working in, the, the reality is, the likelihood is that there's probably some asymmetric surveillance underway that could be, you know, I won't say remedied or improved because those aren't quite the right terms, as you pointed out. It's not just about kind of tightening up, but also really interrogating what we truly need and why, clearly communicating that to workers and then also ensuring that their privacy is protected no matter what. So I'm so glad we could talk to you about this and we raised so many more questions than we can answer, but I think that's totally cool from a policy standpoint. And I can't wait to think and learn more about this with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We so often talk about the future of work as if it's far off in the future, but there's a lot we can learn about how work is changing from the secret life of groceries. Brooklyn-based Benjamin Lohr is the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, a book that offers a glimpse into some of the current dynamics of work in the food sector that should alarm policymakers. His first book was Hellbent, which broke scandals in Bikram yoga, kind of a pre-Me Too, Me Too book. Benjamin, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I need to be here. So your work covers so much, um, but in particular with low-wage grocery labor and the worker mobility, maybe we can just zoom out and you can give us a snapshot of how the grocery industry has been failing workers in the U.S. So your research is U.S. focused, but I'm also assuming the same trends hold true or spill over into Canada. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's a great difference between the U.S. and Canada in terms of in grocery jobs. And it's a great question. It's definitely not what I thought would be the center of the book. When yeah. I started writing it, I was really interested in learning like how do these fantastic kind of temples of abundance and, uh, and choice create that? Uh, and then as I looked at the different systems that support it, it really became a story about labor and capital um, because there are a lot of behind the scenes or, or just overlooked, they're right in front of us workers who are uh, providing that for us. Uh, and essentially, <laughs> you know, the grocery industry is, is not unique. It's, it's a highly competitive marketplace that represents a lot of trends in kind of global capitalism. It, grocery is an extremely low margin business. It's like 1.5 to 3.5% mar margins yeah. on products. So it, it's a volume game to make any profit. Um, it also means it's extremely competitive. So grocers are constantly looking over their shoulders. It's mm. also a food industry, which means that we walk into it with a lot of expectations around safety, sanitation, quality that maybe you don't bring mentally when you're looking at widgets or, you know, other, other kind of purchases in your life, which means there's a kind of a floor for entry for a lot of these products with the standards mm. and certifications they need to hit. And that means that if you're going to compete on price, you the, one of the only places to compete on is with labor um, and the cost that you're paying to labor. Um, and so this kind of dual mechanism of everyone in the industry looking over their shoulders and price comparison shopping at different tiers. So, you know, Walmart is price compare, you know, Walmart is terrified of Aldi uh, and other everyday uh, low price shops and yeah. Whole Foods is 
terrified of Trader Joe's and, and other places that are similar, similarly positioned in terms of value, but they're all terrified of someone and they're all competing on price. And the, one of the only ways that they can actually compete on price is by chipping away at labor costs. And so you yeah. get a race to the bottom that's basically mirrored at every stage in the grocery industry. And frankly, from the check-in on down, like as consumers, we are participating when we are price comparison shopping, but then the grocery buyer is doing it on our behalf when they're looking to get a slightly lower price and they visit the manufacturer and they ask for two cents off last year's price. And then the manufacturer is doing that when they're outsourcing their labor and they're kind of looking for different labor contractors who will bring them a slightly better deal on the labor. And that person is doing that with the labor broker. Uh, and so each time down the chain, this gets compounded. So you have indignities on the shop level in the retail, and then you have really compounded terrible indignities at the way bottom where you have workers who you know, and I, in the book, I traveled to Thailand and look at that yeah. as the microcosm of the bottom of the commodity chain. And, and that, that was just, uh, you know, slave labor. There's really no other better word for people who are bought and sold and, and beaten if they don't work. Um, and, and it's very, it's the same mechanisms all the way down. Right. Well, I mean, as a, as a Canada comparison, I mean, through our temporary foreign worker program, our policies are very open that, you know, these these are the mechanisms we have to hire labor for farming. And there's a there's an additional invisibility there. And I think something sort of fascinating about the pandemic is that, you know, in Canada, we temporarily had uh, hero pay. You know, we recognize grocery workers, at, you know, at I guess at the sharp end of that spear when we're seeing them in store um in at the cash uh in the I was going to say hallway in the aisles of a grocery store but that was kind of a, a blip as well and the hero pay conversations didn't get us to that next step around job security and tenure and kind of benefits and when it comes to that kind of worker erosion you build a relationship with a woman who's involved in shipping her career is shipping in the U.S. I don't, I don't mean to characterize her only as a, as a trucker, but you get in the cab with her and are, and are traveling America. And I was surprised by how the work of trucking has changed because previously it was a ticket to the middle class in, in Canada too. Can you tell us a bit about how, how her work and how her labor has changed as she? Yeah, yeah. Trucking is a great example of you know, it, first of all, it's a great example of deregulation and, and the consequences of that. And I like that section because for me, deregulation had always been a kind of abstract word. And then here's like a human life that has been deregulated. Yeah. And you see that it, there's like vicious consequences. Um, so I walked into that section, probably like you thinking trucking, scruffy, but lovable, blue collar, outlaw, Smokey and the Bandit, Jimmy yeah. Hoff, the Teamsters, like all these like associations that are all rooted in the 70s uh, when trucking was a legitimate blue collar, middle class job, largely because of that unionization and because it was a kind of a cartel like industry with um, a, only a small number of carriers where unionizing could be very effective. What happened under President Carter in the U.S. and Ronald Reagan is that it got deregulated in extreme. So basically anyone could open up a trucking carrier and what had been kind of tightly regulated proliferated. And, you know, a number of big changes happened to that. Rates 
trucking rates fall, there's no doubt in my mind that groceries are cheaper for that yeah. falling rate. The consumer certainly benefits and that's how policy was geared. But the trucker herself becomes a commodified part and it becomes somebody who's basically replaceable. Mm. And the trucking industry shifted in a big way around this. Uh, and like, I guess one of the easiest ways to visualize this is that the turnover rate in trucking over the last decade has fluctuated between about 96 to 116%. Wow. So yeah, those are stats that basically don't make sense. Like a hundred percent turnover means that everyone who's hired in that year is either fired or let leaves uh, of their own volition in that yeah. year. And over a hundred percent, that means that cycle is happening again. <laughs> and it just shows you that these are this is it's a burnout job. Nobody wants to stay in trucking. It, it, it's, right. and it's a it's miserable conditions because you know the woman I follow is living in her cab. She's essentially homeless. It's a truck that she's never going to own because she's working in a lease to own operate uh, owner operator agreement that essentially she takes out a lot of debt to mm. have the chance at one day owning this cab, but that limits her ability to shop around on the market and she only can carry for one carrier only only hauls freight for a single carrier so they have a lot of control over the the loads she gets which yeah she only figures out later in the game after she signed this agreement and is is essentially at, serves at their beck and call she took out additional debt just to get her truck driving license or CDL which then reduces the rate that she gets paid she gets would get paid at like a training rate. Yeah. And, and so the carriers benefit from this tremendously. They get these extremely cheap rates. They lock their employees in from, from leaving, which is like one of the biggest costs of doing business. And then they work them and then eventually they leave and then they can start that cycle all over again. And they do this yeah. with a very manipulative advertising in the US, which is like they promise middle-class jobs, great salaries, um, none of which is borne out in reality. You know, the woman I followed was grossing $120,000 a year for her carrier and she was taking home $17,000. Uh, and like I said, she was essentially homeless. The week I was with her, she took home a paycheck for just $100 that week, which was because, you know, she was just being yeah. led by little ticky-tack deductions that the carrier would take out of her check before she even got it. Yeah. Well, again, from a future of work perspective, I think people expect, you know, oh, grocery will be revolutionized in the future when we have more autonomous trucking or, you know, the only kind of visible yeah, I guess what strikes me about grocery stores is they they seem remarkably similar over time. So, oh, there's some self-checkout kind of options. And is, you know, to what extent is that disrupting cashiers? But again, that invisibility is there. I wonder what has the policy reaction been like in the US or, or what should policymakers take away from the secret life of groceries as they're browsing the aisles that people are paying for, you know, additional prices to just be on a particular level of the shelf, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do decision makers need to take away about what's not so secret, I guess, about the secret life of groceries? So, totally. But before I answer that, which I promise I will. Yeah. Uh, okay. Great question. I do want to pause on that notion of invisibility because I think it's mm. really important. And it's one of the mm. things that it was easiest for me to intellectualize before going into the book, but really seeing it in play 
changed my understanding, which is to say mm. the volume involved in stocking the grocery stores that we expect, the supermarkets of today, which typically have average 45,000 different individual items in them, which is like a staggering number. And then the big ones, you know, the Walmarts or the this Costco superstores, these have like 125,000 different individual items, which the notion of the supermarket is based on continuous availability. Yeah. And these are just, they're not like, you don't have one of each item in the store. You have hundreds of each item in the store. Uh, and so the abundance required to just run even a single grocery store, but much less a chain of like hundreds of these across the country is, it's just mind blowing in terms of the volume of goods that are coming mm -hmm. through. And in many ways that creates this invisibility lower in the supply chain. It's just the, it's too big to see through. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I guess I imagine traceability as being like this flow chart on a corporate wall where you could go from, you know, consumer to 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 buyer to importer to exporter to manufacturer to producer and and you could just kind of follow it down and and the reality of sourcing that level of, of volume at the bottom of the commodity chain is it just doesn't work like that they have aggregators who aggregate products from a wide range and brokers who do that before they get, even get the product which creates a traceability problem and so a lot of the really abusive things in grocery are happening despite nobody at any level wanting them to mm. happen. It isn't a conspiracy of greedy corporations who are like, God, how can we rip off these no. low-wage workers? It's uh, a feeling of helplessness that they're so mm. far removed from the products that they're sourcing. And, 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 and frankly, of course, their convenience, they want what, what's known as frictionless buy or faceless buy they'll talk about, where they buy these products via auction, online auction. But they they don't they just aren't connected to it, and and so re reducing that volume is antithetical to their business model. And there's really no 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 way out other than like kind of reinventing what the supermarket is um, to solve that problem, or putting a lot more resources into the chain, which gets us back to your policy question. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just want to highlight because I think that invisibility yeah. is really important thing that we take for granted when we go to the grocery store, like all that abundance takes a tremendous amount of work to create. And, and it's more than the human mind can really capture. And so these grocery buyers are really at the mercy of outsourcing all that to other people who are at the mercy of outsourcing that to other people who are at the mercy of outsourcing that to other people. And, and, and that creates real big problems. There's real shadows yeah. up in that. Shadows, competition issues. I'm glad you're mentioning that because I think in terms of you mentioning traceability, we sometimes get to, well, you know, where did this come from? But it's just a, it's just a piece of geography. And I think we totally, our minds totally gloss over shipping, who's doing it, who's unloading it. Why, like what's, what's fresh, what's not, it's just, yeah. Even the micro regions in that piece of geography, I mean, like, to, to, like Thai seafood, which I paint a pretty damning picture of yeah. in the book is a gargantuan industry. And so, even painting it in damning ways, you know, there's good actors mixed within bad actors. It, the volume makes simplistic responses impossible. Like what you cut off to buying Thai seafood is in no way going to address the, the labor problems. In fact, you're probably going to force a lot of people who had uh, jobs at 
that that put them in a marginal place into a, a place of ruin because they're going to be yeah. bounced out of the job market and they're probably not going to find a better job. All of which is say just yes, thinking about things in terms of geography and these big picture things feels simple, but when you get to a solutions level, it becomes very complicated. And grocery stores are not equipped for that. You know, put, putting that on a grocery buyer to solve that problem is like is crazy talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the intermediaries. Well, in a pandemic context, I mean, did you did you get caught up in that glimmer where we sort of thought, oh, maybe we're going to nationalize supply chains more often? Like for Canada, food production and farming is is a major part of our economy, right? But Canada is also helping to feed the world, which is another reason I think you know, deeply interrogating how food chains, food cycles, the food industry is changing in terms of labor is really important to look ahead to the future of work because there will be other jobs that are, you know, shifting in ways, again, that we cannot see or cannot comprehend or we're just very insulated from. And I think we forget that when we talk about future of work, we think we're going to see it and feel it and there'll be like stark substitution effects. That's right. I think that insulated factor is really important. Uh, and what you were saying about the grocery store ch not changing or the products in the grocery store not changing. I mean, I talked to a, 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 a woman who is kind of an expert in the tuna supply chain, and she'd be like, look, the tuna can looks from a consumer perspective identical to what it did in the 1950s, 1940s. Right. Uh, but what goes into that can has can been completely changed. And so you have no idea that you're opening up this can that has completely different origins. It, and, and I think that's very true of the minimum wage jobs. I, you know, I had a minimum wage job when I graduated college. Um, I worked retail and I have a certain nostalgia for that job, even not just for the time of life that I was working in it, but for the job itself. It was, it was fun. I had fun coworkers. And the reality is that when I went back, so for this book, I worked in a Whole Foods for a short you yeah. know, dilettantish section just so I could work on the retail floor. But the reality is that job had changed in the same way that the tuna can had changed. Um, and that the demands on a minimum wage job now are much more ruthless than they were in my nostalgic, you know, like schedules not given to us until three mm. days beforehand. Um, schedules that could change, you know, coming to a shift and being asked to leave early, constantly being told, and I was working at a Whole Foods, which in many ways was one of the, the better employers out there, um, but constantly being told that you had to be a team player to do to kind of like extra extra demands. And if, you know, the, the implied threat that like, if you didn't do these, then maybe we'd have to ask you to play for a different team. And, and a feeling of like really no job security. And this is me talking about my experience, but obviously my interviews with, with other workers that I was, uh, was working with, despite the fact that the company was doing very well at the time, all of that, you know, it, it's just foreign from what I, you know, remember when I was working, we would get the schedule you know, a week or two in advance. And that was, you could schedule your life around it, which was of course very important to me as I was like running around the city as a young person. But imagine if I, now these minimum wage jobs are occupied by people who, who depend on them and, you know, are scheduling childcare around them or, or trying to yeah. schedule a second job around them. And then when you get a schedule with only three days notice or you get a schedule that changes on the dime, it, it's obviously the consequences are, are worse than indignity. It just prevents you from creating a life for yourself. Benjamin, Ben, thank you so much. Yeah. I think you've given us so much to think about. Next time we are 
browsing a supermarket or, you know, going for the faceless convenience of ordering online and having something delivered and picking up curbside, kind of challenging ourselves and each other to think more deeply about those systems, those supply chains, those intermediaries, and taking those clues uh, to inform our policymaking for the future of work because it's here and it's at our grocery stores. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. When it comes to looking ahead and considering how technology might change your job or the area of work that you're working on, that you're most interested in, we heard about a new framework from Kaylee Thiessen that can help us break beyond that binary of job loss, substitution effects, and complementarity. Because there are so many ways that a worker can be affected by technology in the workplace. And in thinking about how a worker can negotiate this workplace of the future, we tried to take a look at the workplace of today with Brenda McPhail. While surveillance has perhaps always been a feature of work, it's up to us to clarify where that boundary between supervision and surveillance should be as we look to achieve greater proportionality and better empower workers as they seek to negotiate the employment contract that is increasingly digitized and data hungry. We can find a better balance between collecting information and deriving insights from that information from workers while also protecting people's privacy and preserving their autonomy. That said, doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. And we spoke with Benjamin Lohr about the secret lives of groceries. Grocery stores might seem familiar, traditional, stagnant over time, but the worker supply chains and producer supply chains that interact in order to give us these places of abundance with frontline workers um, that may not enjoy or appreciate the type of job security that we might assume they have. There's so much to learn from the invisible changes that groceries, grocery stores, our food chains have experienced and what have come to characterize them today. What it all comes down to is reminding ourselves and each other that the future of work is here. If you just look for it, it might be watching you. It might be watching your colleague. It might be disrupting that person on the sitting next to you on the bus in a way that you haven't quite conceived. So the next time you're strolling down the grocery aisle or maybe ordering online and having a little bit more of a faceless interaction, think about how the future of work is already here and what you expect policymakers should do about it. At the end of our podcast, we'd like to take a moment to salute some of the above and beyond the Call of Duty efforts being made by PPF members and partners. Our Brave New Work Project, and by extension, this podcast, was made possible by many partners, including our member, Unifor. As many of you know, Unifor is a Canadian union with a modern, inclusive approach to improving and protecting workplaces and communities. With over 315,000 members, Unifor brings a modern approach to unionism by adopting new tools, engaging their members, and meeting the demands of the 21st century. We are PPF proud of our member and Brave New Work partner, Unifor, and grateful to Unifor researcher Kaylee Thiessen for being part of today's episode. 
That's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I'd like to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National News Watch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca. And if you'd like to hear more about the future of work with themes like innovation in education and training, how some sectors have managed to thrive through disruption and transformation, and how we can navigate precarity in non-standard work arrangements, then you won't want to miss the Public Policy Forum's third annual Brave New Work Conference. It will be held virtually on June 22nd and 23rd. Head on over to the publicpolicyforum.ca slash event slash messy middle to register. Of course, the Public Policy Forum is grateful to our Brave New Work project partners, including our lead sponsor, TD Bank Group, as well as our partners at the Government of Canada, the Business Council of Canada, the Canadian Bankers Association, Kojiko, Deloitte, the Diversity Institute and Future Skills Centre, the Metcalf Foundation, and Unifor. Until next time, I'm Vass Bednar, stepping in for Ed Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking, Brave New Work Edition.